Hi, everybody. This is the Future Gravy uh, channel. Uh, before I introduce our guest today, um, I have a few announcements. Um, I'm, I've been searching for a person to interview regarding the Mimble Wimble um, uh, project. So I'm wondering if uh, one of you can uh, chime in and tell me who I can I can interview, that would be great. Uh, it has been submitted anonymously, so um, it's a little hard. Uh, I contacted Bitfinex asking for um, an interview. They have not replied regarding um, the liquidity problems with the Taiwan banking and so on. So if, you, if anybody knows anybody at Bitfinex, that would be great too. Um, and uh, today we're going to talk about the recent controversy with the Blockstream patents. Um, Rick Falkving made some um, uh, claims that Blockstream had some patents on SegWit. Now, there has been no evidence of that, so I'm not going to cover that. Uh, if somebody has evidence, then they can submit it to me, and then I will cover that in a different uh, broadcast. So today I'm going to um, have, I'm, I'm having right now, uh, Stefan Kinsella um, with us. I'm very excited about that. Uh, Stefan is a registered US patent attorney. He has published numerous articles and books on IP law, amongst other fields, obviously. And he has also taught computer law as adjunct professor at South Texas College of Law. There is a full biography in the show notes uh, below if you want to learn more about Stefan. Uh, his uh, website is stefankinsella.com. Um, welcome, Stefan. Thanks, Rod. So um, today uh, there is... Um, there has been a controversy with Blockstream, which is a company that um, uh, sort of funds Bitcoin development uh, for the Bitcoin core team. And a lot of people in the Bitcoin community are concerned that this uh, code that is being donated by uh, Blockstream has ulterior motives. Um, and Blockstream does own some patents or they are applying for patents um uh, regarding side chains and uh i think i think that's what they're um patenting um and uh so the bitcoin community is very concerned that blockstream could use those patents against the bitcoin community that they claim to be serving so that's what we're going to be talking about with stefan amongst other things um the bitcoin community stands for freedom of commerce so it would be disastrous if um, the contributions of Blockstream would backfire. So, um, Stefan, would you describe for us what a defensive patenting is? Uh, yes. I, I think I need to go into maybe a little general sort of overview of uh, how copyright and patent are problems and, and uh, different mechanisms that, that kind of have arisen or, or that could be used. Uh, in response to to them, um, as many people may know, uh, libertarians increasingly oppose patent and copyright. Uh, I'm I'm one of them. I'm a patent attorney, uh, but only really to help 
companies defensively in, in other ways. Um, I believe patent and copyright are complete. They should be completely abolished. Uh, they are com uh, copyright censors free speech and uh, and and hampers uh, software type development, co and patents uh, impede innovation and distort the market and give rise to cartels and monopolies, uh, and reduce wealth for everybody. They are both completely antithetical to free speech and and free trade and competition and the free market and property rights. Uh, they're both horrible systems that are vestiges of uh, an older time uh, where the government controlled speech and the press and granted monopolies and restricted speech and trade. Um, so just with that said, uh, most people are familiar with uh, uh, with the copyright. Copyright and patent are different, and we can't go into too many details here because it's really a very specialized legal field. But Copyrights are granted automatically, and they're granted for uh, original, expressive, or creative content, and that does include software. Um, in fields outside of software, like a novel or a painting, usually it's very unlikely for more than one person to come up with the same uh, work. Like two people wouldn't write Atlas Shrugged usually. So when when you say that they're granted automatically, do you mean <coughs> that as soon as it is publicized? No, it's even before no. that. As soon as it's fixed in a tangible medium of expression, that as soon as you write it. So ever since the 1980s and uh, when the US joined the Berne Convention, um, copyright formalities, which they used to be called, were abolished. A formality meant you had to have a notice, like a little copyright notice saying copyright John J. Jones, nineteen eighty-two, or whatever, and you had to register it with the copyright office. You had to take an active step, okay. And if you didn't, you didn't have a copyright or not an enforceable one. Now copyright's automatic. So as soon as you write a copyright, as soon as you create uh, any kind of original creative work of expression, like a painting or a movie or a novel or a poem or software, you have a copyright automatically immediately. By virtue of doing that, so you don't actually have to file anymore. No, you don't have to file. And th this is one misconception people have. They'll say, uh, uh, "I copyrighted that work." You can't copyright anything. You have a copyright automatically by by virtue of being the author. Uh, now you need to register it before you sue someone, but that's just a, a legal formality. Um, and the other thing is it's very difficult to get rid of. Everyone thinks that you can just uh, donate your works to the public domain. I don't know how they think you can do that by making some kind of – you know, walking down the street on a Sunday, shouting to the clouds, I hereby release my copyright. It doesn't work that way. If you said – if you turned around and shouted at the ceiling right now, I hereby re uh, de uh, renounce my claims to Social Security payments, you would still have the right to claim Social Security later. Do you know what I mean? So. Yeah. That's why the Creative Commons license and the, uh, the the GNU and these various software copyleft type licenses arose as an attempt to give people the ability to somewhat get out of copyright. So they did that by giving you the ability to try to license your software, your copyright in the software to other people on certain terms. And those terms in the case of software were everyone can use this code. On, but if they modify it and create a new thing called a derivative work, uh, in order to do that, to have our permission to do that, you have to use our software to make that derivative work, and you need our permission. We're going to grant you that permission, but in exchange, you need to grant everyone else a, uh, 
a similar license like that. That's the that's the way the software licenses work. And um, how about when uh, a software <clears throat> has not been uh, written by just one person, but a co collaborative work uh, of uh, open source? Uh, because there's a project in the Bitcoin community called Segregated Witness uh, that has been around for about 12 months. And um, some people are saying, and I think you might agree with that, that it is not patentable because it has been in the open and it has been developed over the course of a whole year and it's considered prior art. Could you explain a little bit about that and whether I'm wrong or not? That's not exactly wrong. Um, and uh, let's return to copyright in a second. But so the, the patent field is you, you obtain a patent for an invention and an invention uh, is a new and useful and, and uh, uh, non-obvious uh, process or technique or, or de device like an apparatus, a machine, hardware or software. We can think of it here, um, but it has to be new. For it to be new, it can't have been known already. If it was known already more than a year, well, first of all, you have to be the inventor. You, if you learned about it from someone else, then you're not the inventor. You're just copying it. So you're not entitled to a patent if unless you came up with it on your own. But even if you came up with it on your own, if it was known publicly for more than a year before you filed your patent, that does serve as prior art. Um, which I'll return to when we discuss the the purpose of these defensive patent licenses and whether that really is something that Blockstream needs needed to have done, uh, because there are other techniques you can use to prevent your your um, there are other techniques you can use to prevent your own proprietary processes from becoming patented by others. Namely, you can just make them public. You don't actually need to file a patent on it to to keep someone else from patenting it. You can just make it public. Uh, now, in the, in the case of copyright, let me make it clear. The only reason that you need a, a Creative Commons license or the um, – what's the software – the main software license called? Not is not, not Is it GNU? Um, the only reason you need these licenses is because there's copyright. A license just means permission. You don't need permission unless there's copyright. If we didn't have copyright law, there would be no GNU license. There would be no open source licenses. There would be no – Creative Commons. They wouldn't make any sense because no one would need permission. They could just use any publicly available knowledge and use it to their heart's content. And that so would be a license better. is a, a license is a granting of rights, yes, a permission to the outside. It I just see. means permission. You could you could substitute the word permission. Okay. Okay. And are you familiar with the with a specific uh, a patent license called defensive? patent license it appears to be kind of a patent sharing community yes uh, so in the field of copyright remember everyone gets a copyright automatically and you can get a copyright in code but it's only for code that you write now you asked about the case of multiple um, uh, like a large group of contributors well, then they're, in that case, they're either individual contributors to some new piece of the code, which is a derivative work of the original, or they are co-authors of some new derivative work. And in, in, in either case, to make a derivative work, you need the permission of the underlying work that you're deriving your work from, which is why this whole system works the way it does. It works okay in the case of – in the field of copyright. Um, in, in the field of um, – like publishing books, people are starting to use Creative Commons or music, right? Uh, creative Commons. Now, the one problem I've had uh, with the Creative Commons model and the GNU model is 
remember a, a license is a it's a grant of permission which is basically a contract in the old days if you wanted to seek permission from the owner of a copyright you would approach him and say i want permission or i want a license and they would write a contract and they would sign it and you would pay them some money so in the in the in the law there would be what's called consideration like i'm giving you a hundred dollars in exchange for your granting me this contract and we have proof of the contract which is a written document that we both signed and if you tried to sue me later for violating your copyright, I would say, I'm sorry, I have a defense. You gave me permission by contract, which is binding, and that's contract law. The problem with Creative Commons is that there's all there's not always evidence of the contract because the publisher can change just go on their website and change their terms from time to time. Uh, there's no consideration granted quite often. There's no payment made, so maybe they could argue that the contract was not valid. In other words, there's a danger that the publisher or the author of the work could just change their mind and sue someone anyway who had relied upon the previous Creative Commons notice. Because and there's no record of the timeline uh, of, of events. Is that correct? It may be difficult to prove the record. Maybe the, the person that was making a derivative work based upon the book or selling a copy of it didn't do a screenshot based upon what they saw at the time, or maybe the Internet Archive didn't snap it that day. Uh, or maybe the, maybe the uh, publisher says, well, there's no consideration. They didn't pay me anything, so I can. there's not a binding contract. I can just change my mind. Now, I think that there's another principle in the law called estoppel, which might work to prevent them from doing that. But again, it's not as clear cut as a written signed contract, um, and it would be harder to prove. I haven't seen this happen, and I think the courts would tend to favor the so-called licensee if they could prove that they had been granted a license, but it's not always easy to prove. Um, as another uh, wrinkle, for example, I published a book called Against Intellectual Property in like two, 2000 something with the Mises Institute. And when they published it, they stamped on it copyright Mises Institute. Now, for, as I noticed, you don't have to put the copyright notice on a work, and putting it on the work is irrelevant. Just because they said copyright Mises Institute doesn't mean that they own the copyright. The copyright law says the author owns the copyright unless he assigns it to someone else by a writing, and I didn't do that. So I own it, but no one knows that. So people have said, well, Kinsella, you let the Mises Institute copyright your book. As I said, copyright's not a verb. You can't copyright something, and I didn't do that. It's just put on there, so it confuses people. So by the same token, if you put Creative Commons License 3.0 on your book, it doesn't mean that you negotiated a license with someone. It doesn't mean they paid consideration. It doesn't mean you might not change your mind later, or it doesn't mean that maybe a fake person put that notice on a copy, a bootleg copy of the work. So there's all these issues of proof which make these Creative Commons licenses a little bit dodgy. Uh, I don't blame them for that. That's a, a product of the of the copyright law. Now, let's turn to patents. A patent is a, a monopoly grant by the government to someone who actively – you have to apply. You don't have a patent unless you apply, so it's not automatic as in the case of copyright. You have to file a patent application with the patent office, and then it has to be approved and issued or granted, and it becomes a patent that lasts roughly 17 years. And what it protects is what's claimed in the written claims. There's a numbered set of claims. It starts with claim one and goes to claim 20 or 100 or whatever, and the first claim usually says something like, I claim, number one, uh, a method for doing the following, comprising the steps of A, B, C, period. So that's what your property right is in. Okay. <clears throat> one thing to understand is, is 
which most people don't even I don't know if Blockstream does, given some of the language they use on their on their explanation of why they're doing this patent. Um, one thing to understand is that a patent number one does not does not give you permission to practice what you have an invention a patent on. It only gives you permission to stop other people. Okay, so if your claim give, uh, claims a process doing steps A, B, C, and D, then no one else can perform use a computer say to perform steps A, B, C, and D without your permission. But there might be a broader patent covering steps A, B, and C that you would yourself be infringing if you practice A, B, C, and D. So you still couldn't even use your own invention. So a patent is not a permission. It's only the right to, to block people from doing something. So okay. that patent, uh, we'll go into that, the vulnerabilities uh, uh, that that Blockstream is subjecting itself to. But what you're saying is that um, basically uh, they're vulnerable to attack from other people that could be enforcing other patents. Well, upon I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not targeting Blockstream. I'm saying this is the nature of patents. Patents do not I protect see. you from anything. They, they don't give you permission to do anything. They only give you a weapon to stop someone from doing something. Now, the reason people obtain patents is, is for two reasons. Um, number one, they do it so that they can become aggressive with it. They can go around and find people who are using the, uh, the, the covered technology, and they can sue them for money, or they can sue them for an injunction to stop them from doing it if it's a competitor to stop competition. Um, Trolls are only one subset of this problem, and in fact, all these uh, tech guys and software guys, I think they're completely, completely confused on the patent issue. Uh, they go around talking about low-quality patents, patent trolls, and software patents as if that's the problem, and I think they're completely wrong about that. They also say things like, well, the original purpose of the patent system has been corrupted. The original purpose was to stimulate innovation, but unfortunately, now we have patent trolls. Now we have software patents that are too broad, and the patent examiners are not equipped to find the relevant prior art for software because it's not published in the same way that the prior art for other types of inventions are. And they make these kind of criticisms, which to my mind is like arguing that the problem with the income tax is that the 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 standard deduction is not ten dollars higher, okay? Or or it's like saying that we could fix the the tax income tax code if we just have the IRS grant a taxpayer bill of rights, which of course is only a procedural hurdle for them taking your money. They're still going to take your money. That's the problem with with the tax system, right? The problem with the patent system is actually everything that these these uh, unprincipled utilitarian tech critics uh, don't criticize. In other words, the problem is the high-quality patents that are used by competitors, not by trolls. The problem is not software patents, uh, patent trolls, and uh, low-quality patents. In fact, a troll is the least threat that we face, in my opinion, because a troll just wants – they don't want to kill your business. They want your business to be as big as possible, and they want a little taste. They're like a mafia. Just they want a little taste. You can pay them off. You can pay them off. It's like a little tax. Okay, You can pay patent trolls off. And by the way, what patent trolls do is not illegitimate given the existence of patents. If patents are a legitimate thing and a legitimate property right, there's no reason that the owner of the patent 
shouldn't be able to sell it to someone else who can then exploit it. This is look, this is the free market. If a patent is is a exchangeable, tradable right. In fact, this is why corporations have patents because their employees who naturally would own the in, the patent that comes from their inventions because that's the way the patent law works. It says that the inventor of an invention is entitled to obtain a patent on it. Okay, but if he works for a corporation, they have an agreement with the employer, um, or it's a default agreement. Usually, it's a written agreement where he assigns his patents to his employer. So that's an assignment right there. In that case, the 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 employer is no different than a patent troll who buys a patent from a previous owner. They're just people who bought a right that is usable. So the problem with the patent system is not that someone can use the. I mean, it's not who uses the patent; is that it can be used. Okay, and as I said, the patent troll just wants a little bit of money. He can be bought off. But if your competitor sues you, they want you to stop doing it. They want to eliminate competition. Or what's more commonly the case, you have these oligopolies, these cartels arise. So take the smartphone wars. You have large companies like Google, uh, Motorola, Apple, Samsung. They have uh, … A large position in the first place, large resources. So they acquire and lots of engineers, lots of innovations. They acquire very large patent portfolios, like thousands of patents. And by the way, it costs lots of money just to understand these patents and to analyze them and to understand what they cover. No one really knows what they cover. All you can see is like it's a big forest of trees that seem to cover uh, all these areas, and it's like a minefield. It would take millions of dollars to hire a bunch of patent lawyers to analyze this, and even then you wouldn't be sure they were right. So you're always taking a risk if you enter into this area. So in the smartphone area, there are tens of thousands of patents covering various aspects of the technology that's incorporated into different smartphones and smartphone-related technology. And so you'll have like a Samsung sue a Google or, or an Apple, but because – let's say Samsung sues Apple… Apple has its own patents, and what they do is they get their patent lawyers to comb through their, their mountain of patents and try to find some patents that maybe Samsung is infringing with their products, and they countersue them. And then finally the parties agree to uh, a settlement, and they both agree to license each other their own patent portfolios for some kind of payment, and then they go about their business. And so if the big players all do this… If you're a little guy like a little startup and you have an idea for a new for a new smartphone technology, if you're on the outside of this sort of walled garden and you want to start selling a smartphone, if you know if if Rod wants to sell Rod's smartphone, you're probably infringing patents from Google, Samsung, Motorola, Apple, and every one of them can sue you into obliteration and you don't have any weapons to countersue them with because you're just one little guy, you have no patents. Even and if they you have, have they have tens of thousands of patents, as tens an of thousands, arsenal. and they have billions of dollars they can spend on big patent law firms who can sue you. And even if you wanted to defend yourself, you would have to come up with three or four or five million dollars, pay some law firm to defend you, and you might not even win because there is a patent law that actually means that patents can be enforced. And so. What it does is you just don't compete. You don't even innovate in that field. You give up, and you go away, and so we only have a limited number of players in a given market. So in that way, patents uh, create uh, oligopolies or cartels, uh, but it also gives an incentive for these startups to start acquiring patents whenever they can because they know that without these patents, they'll be vulnerable to a lawsuit. So for example, a small high-tech startup 
every time their engineers come up with a with a new idea that's possibly patentable, if they have the funds, they'll hire a patent lawyer like me to go obtain a patent on it. And they're doing that not to enforce it usually because if they enforce it, it takes money to enforce it. And usually there's not like a, some single small company they can sue that is vulnerable because usually uh, they're not going to get a lot of money from them anyway. It's just not worth it. And they don't have the two $2 million to hire lawyers to sue someone anyway. So in other words, smaller companies that are tech companies are generally not obtaining patents in order to use them aggressively. And I would say that's probably the case in Blockstream's case too. They are using them to b slowly build an arsenal that they can use defensively. It's sort of like North Korea trying to get a nuclear weapon now just so that they won't be attacked by the big nuclear powers. Okay. Hence, hence the name defensive patenting. Yes, and also hence the name MAD, mutually assured destruction. Okay. So if you sue me, I'm going to sue you. So you have all these companies accumulating patents either to use them aggressively to stop competition or if like trolls, they'll use them to get licenses or some companies are basically trolls like IBM, uh, uh, some other companies I could mention that I've dealt with. They make hundreds of millions of dollars or billions even every year on licensing fees. A lot of universities do this, right? Yeah, they're like the mafia. They'll go out to someone and they'll act like it's friendly. Hey, we see that you're a new startup and you're doing this you're doing technology in this field. You might want to take a look at our 10 patents here, and we'd be happy to sit down and talk with you about it. Now, they act like they're offering you something, but what they're offering to do is not destroy you if you will give them a little bit of your, of your revenue stream. That's what they're doing, okay? Not only is it uh, morally wrong, but it's an incredible waste of resources, what you're describing here. It's a huge waste of resources, uh, and not only is it a waste – so that's just a drag on the economy. Uh, it's also uh, a reduction in innovation because, as I said, a lot of smaller people just give up. They don't go into a certain field, and they don't, so they never innovate in that field because they know that they would be sued out of existence. So it reduces innovation. It distorts the market. It causes uh, it causes oligopolies and cartels, which of course reduces competition, which reduces innovation and increases costs for everyone. So the patent system is a huge. Uh, I, I mean, I estimate it's maybe a trillion dollars a year in lost wealth due to increased innovation that we otherwise would have, maybe even more. Uh, we would be so far ahead technologically in this world right now if we hadn't had patents. Uh, it'd be, it would be mind-blowing. We might be 50 years ahead. Uh, we might be 30 years ahead of where we – you know, we, we might have artificial intelligence already, et cetera. Uh, so it's, it's one of the worst uh, government systems in terms of destroying human prosperity and human wealth and innovation. Uh, and of course, everyone is brainwashed into the system, and they get used to it because they think, well, I'm entitled to my idea, and we need the patent system to incentivize innovation, all of which is utter confusion and nonsense. But anyway, this is the background for what the, the system that we're in right now. So in this system, if you're a smaller company, you have a few choices if you have anything related to do, to, to do with technology. You can either spend some of your resources obtaining patents in the hopes that maybe you can sell them someday to a patent troll or to a bigger company who wants to use them aggressively, right, like a troll, or that you can uh, use them defensively if someone sues you, okay? 
Um, so that's what you have. Um, that seems now. to be a fool's errand unless you're a big company that can buy a lot of patents. Am I wrong? Well, it's not quite a fool's errand because if you're a successful small company, you're usually not a target right away. So you have time to become successful. And by the time you are, you might have 10, 20, or 100 patents, and you start becoming more formidable then. And plus, because everyone in the world has this patent mentality now, VCs, you know, your, your investors, they all – when they do their due diligence and they decide whether to invest in you, one of the questions is, well, do you have proprietary technology? Do you have your patents locked up? They just want to check it off their list. And if you don't have any patents, they're going to think that you're exposed. You know, they don't, they're going to, they just want to see that you're doing the right things. Yes, I have, I have my trademark filings on our name. Yes, we, we have an active patent program where every time we have an innovation, we have a patent lawyer consider it and we file if we think it's necessary. So they say, okay, good. So, it actually adds value to a company's valuation if you have patents because that's what everyone expects because they they just it's like having it's like not having insurance if you're driving on the road you need to have it right that's how people look at it uh, they're not going to rent a car to you Avis is not going to rent a car to you if you can't prove that you have insurance if you don't have a driver's license you know this is what people want um, if you want to go public as a public company uh, you know all all the uh, the, the the investment banks are going to insist that you have a regular patent program in place. Okay, it's a little bit less true of software because uh, software is uh, a little bit less. Uh, uh, it's a little bit newer of a field of patents, and plus, software can be covered by uh, copyright. And as I said, there's this tradition, this this growing uh, open software movement where it's understood that people will can and sometimes will open up their software. Now, another thing that some companies have done is they will uh, – uh, sometimes you'll have these patent pools where companies in a given sector or industry will gather together, and they'll put their patents together for defensive purposes, which is getting closer to this defensive patent license that you mentioned. That's more general. That's more like a Creative Commons license. The pools are more for by a sector. And related to that, sometimes in the past, when you have a group of companies come together to develop an industry standard, right, like the Wi-Fi standard or Bluetooth standard or various communication standards, cable TV standards, laser standards, all these things, uh, there is a lot of these companies that are influential in developing the standard. They'll have company members sit on the boards of these things. They all have their patents, and sometimes it covers that very technology, and there's always a concern that, wait a second, uh, if we all get together and develop a standard that we're all going to try to use, right? Uh, what if you sue us? So there's been law on this about, about whether if you help develop a standard and then you sue all the members and the public for patent infringement later, maybe that's an antitrust violation right? because then you have the intersection of antitrust law and patent law. Or maybe there's an so, or for uh, listeners that don't know, antitrust it tries to break up monopolies, right? Yes. And and uh, patents try to create monopolies, right? Exactly. So, so you have the government granting people the right to have monopolies, and the government having another law saying you shouldn't have monopolies. And so, of course, they say that antitrust law and patent law are in tension, and so the courts have to balance these things, just just like the courts say that copyright law, which prevents you from saying things or singing things or writing things, is in tension with the First Amendment, which gives you freedom of speech and freedom of the press. So the courts say that the copyright and the First Amendment are in tension, so we have to balance these rights. Okay, so that's what they do with antitrust law. Or sometimes the argument will be made that by participating in a standard, 
setting group, you are implicitly granting, you're granting an implied license to your patents to the community because that's the purpose of trying to get a standard going. Or at least you can't, you can't use an injunction to shut people down. You have to at least be open to granting a reasonable non-discriminatory license to your technology. Okay, so that's the background for these industry standards, which I think is more similar to this to the blockchain Bitcoin type technology. So in the case of the defensive patent license, which is the license that Blockstream uh, wants to use, um, which is sort of like a patent sharing uh, community, it, it actually explicitly promises not to offensively assert its patents against other companies that are also inside yes. that defensive patent license. Um, now, how about companies outside? Let's say that a another Bitcoin company is using uh, technology that has been patented by Blockstream, but they're not inside that uh, defensive patent uh, okay. community. Okay, so Are they vulnerable? Yes, and I think that's that's appropriate in the design of the defensive patent license. Let, let me explain what they're trying to do here. Uh, and also let me explain one thing about trolls. As I said, the purpose of having a patent usually for most companies is not to assert it and to extort money from other people. Usually it's just a defensive weapon to counter sue another competitor who would sue you. That's the primary purpose, okay? But a patent troll buys a patent from an inventor or from another company, and the patent troll is not in the manufacturing business. All they do is own patents. So they are not vulnerable to a countersuit from whoever they sue because uh, they're not a competitor. So if a patent troll sues a laser company, the laser company might have a thousand patents in their war chest, but the patent troll is not going to be making any lasers, so there's nothing to countersue them with. Okay. On the other hand, as I said, the patent troll just – he can be bought off, but you can't use your patents against him. Okay, So having a defensive arrangement with, with a bunch of other people in a pool doesn't help you uh, stop patent trolls from suing you. It doesn't help you at all, except the idea is that it removes some patents from the universe of patents that the patent trolls could buy up in the first place. So the hope is that this patent – Defensive patent arrangement, which is like a copyleft or like the GNU, sort of like open source. If you join this little club, everyone that joins the club, number one, they have to agree to us that all their patents, you can't pick and choose. All my patents and all my future patents are going to be subject to this license, uh, and I can't sue anyone else in this little club, and they can't sue me. Okay, But we're free to sue people on the outside, which is if you didn't have that right… Then the patent pool would disappear over time because no one would attain patents. You wouldn't have an incentive to acquire a patent because the, the defensive patent license allows you to join even if you don't have any patents. You just have to make a pledge basically. Okay, You have to pledge if I, any patents that I have or any patents that I acquire, I will not assert against fellow members of this little club. Right? Okay, well, if I'm not going to assert the patents against members of the club, and let's say it's a large club, then what value is it to me to even have a patent? Because as I said, a patent doesn't give you permission to do anything, and if I'm not going to be suing people on the outside, 
and I can't sue a troll, what good does it do to have a patent? I might save my money and stop acquiring patents. So there's no incentive for me to obtain patents. So you all just the members enter the community and that's it. Yeah, but if everyone enters the community and no one has patents, then it's not a community it's of it's useless. So I think the defensive patent license wants to keep let you maintain your right to sue outsiders. So that's still valuable. It still gives you some incentive to acquire the patents that go into the pool in the first place. But of course, if this pool were to be ultimately successful, let's say more and more companies joined it and every one of the let's say everyone in the United States joins this pool, then you would have hundreds of thousands of patents, all totally useless. No one could sue anyone. So you'd have had had billions of dollars expended on acquiring these weapons that are totally useless. So of course at that point, people would say, look, thank God we've removed this threat to competition. I'm going to stop getting patents, and, and it would just dwindle, right? And then eventually patents on the outside would emerge again. It would start all over again. So the problem is the patent system, and I don't see how this is uh, going to be any kind of real solution to it. I do grant that it's a, it could be a small step forward if enough companies join it, then there will be a large number of Bitcoin-related patents that are in this pool. And as these companies go bankrupt or whatever, uh, any patent troll that wanted to buy those patents – would buy them encumbered by the previous license, and they couldn't use them against the uh, against the previous members. That's the idea behind this thing: is that the patent trolls have a smaller number of patents to try to buy to aim at at Bitcoin uh, users. But of course, some independent inventor at any time could just come up with a new Bitcoin patent, and if he didn't join the the defensive patent license. He could be a troll himself or sell his patent to a troll. So it's not some kind of absolute guarantee at all. And, and by the way, let me give an analogy to what's going on right now in the podcasting space. Uh, I actually haven't kept up with the development of this, but there there was a company um, that had a had a troll that had purchased a patent, uh, like a 15-year-old patent on a sequential method of displaying data on a website. Which sounds a little bit like an RSS feed, right? Because an RSS feed is like a chronological listing of content. You know, that's how you can subscribe to a podcast. So it wasn't meant to, to apply to podcasts because it was written before there were podcasting. But the way the language of the patent claim is, it's broad enough to arguably cover what's podcasting now. So they started sending out cease and desist letters to big podcasts that make a lot of money, like Adam Carolla and others. And uh, they were threatening to shut down podcasting, which is one of the most exciting you know, new developments in, in media distribution, etc. cetera. Uh, and they were a threat to uh, all the companies that facilitated this, all the platforms like Apple. Uh, so uh, it, it was fought by some companies. And of course, you can try to invalidate the patent by having a long fight in court, or you can go to the patent office and try to have it reexamined. But there's no guarantee that you'll win because the patent might well be valid. The, we do have a patent system. Everyone thinks that if it seems unfair that you, if you fight hard enough, you can defeat the patent, but that's simply just not true. The law allows patents to be granted. But you are guaranteed to lose your lawyer's fees. Well, you're not guaranteed because there there are provisions for uh, the judge to award attorney's fees in certain extreme cases, but that's not even guaranteed either. So you'd have to take a big risk and or find lawyers who would do this pro bono. And why would they defend a company trying to make money pro bono? So the whole thing is a mess, right? But so the fear in the blockchain community, I think the blockchain community has a reasonable fear that someone out there, either a participant 
who has real technology and real patents or a troll who buys up a patent covering something related to blockchain will uh, will sue uh, all the big players and then then all the little players in the Bitcoin community and and it could potentially stifle uh, blockchain. Now, as I said, most people that do this want money. Uh, they want money, and so they could probably be bought off. I don't think they want to kill the goose that lays the golden egg. And also, by the same token, the uh, uh, any actual blockchain participant, even if they wanted to use their patents anti-competitively, uh, they know that their entire existence depends upon a vibrant blockchain community. They know they can't be the only ones, or it, they, that will also kill Bitcoin. Right? That would kill it. Because no one would trust it, and it would just it would just die away. So they don't want to kill it either. So even they could be bought off. I do believe uh, we have some similar cases in the case of like Tesla and uh, Twitter. Uh, well, Twitter's a little bit different case, which I'll get into in a second. But Tesla, uh, you know, is on the forefront of this electric car um, uh, industry. Now they want to dominate, but they also want it to be a real industry. So they know they can't be the only player. They want other companies that sell electric cars to come up so that there will be more electric gas stations or what do you call electric fueling stations crop up around the country so that more people want to buy Teslas. So they've sort of made a pledge to not enforce their patents against others. But again, that's not really an enforceable contract necessarily. It's just a public statement by the owner saying we're not going to sue anyone. Now, if they did sue someone anyway… The, the defendant probably could tell the judge or tell the jury, listen, they said we could do it. We were relying upon what they said, and there might be something called a stopple that comes in that would have stopped Tesla from asserting their patents. So they would look really bad if they tried to assert the patents, but it's not really necessarily a legally binding contract. Because uh, Blockstream does have such a pledge yes. um, where they, they – and they say in their uh, FAQ that um, – um, they intended to be legally binding, yes. uh, but you are saying that it, that's a murky thing? Yes, I think it's very murky. No, they're, I, I don't blame them. They're doing the best they can. So as far as I understand, what they've done is they've done a twofold approach, and it looks like they're looking at three from, our, from reading their FAQ. Number one, so they made a pledge. The pledge is, number one, we're joining the defensive patent license, which means all of their patents um, – uh, are subject to this pat defensive patent license. And by the way, the defensive patent license lets you withdraw. You can withdraw upon 180 days' notice, and then you can start suing. Uh, uh, you can start suing people. The only requirement is that if you sue a, a, a member that's still a member, you have to you have to give them a license on reasonable terms. So you can still charge them. A, so it's not like some irrevocable license. Uh, but I guess they had to build that in to try to entice people to join the defensive patent license. So the patents that they would have could be taken out of that license and, and re-entered into a different uh... – That's my understanding. My understanding is that with 180 days notice, you can leave the defensive patent license. Uh, the only thing is that uh, – and they even say if you've granted a license to one of the members before, like a free license, you can convert it to a royalty license. So you could – you. If I understand this license correctly, and maybe a defensive patent license expert could correct me, if I if I read this correctly, if you join the defensive patent license and you decide three years later, let's say you've got a lot more patents now, and your patent lawyers are saying, "Hey, we can monetize these things. We can become a patent troll, basically. Let's leave this defensive patent license and let's go sue 
well, you already have the right to sue outsiders as even as a member of the defensive patent license. But let's sue some of the members of blockchain, the, the defensive patent license themselves. Let's sue these guys. You can you can sue them. Uh, you can convert your license to a royalty bearing license. In other words, you can approach someone. You can say, I know you, you've been using our technology for three years uh, for free, but now we want you to start paying us a fee. So you have to grant them a fee based upon FRAND. Uh, uh, I forgot what FRAND stands for, but it means uh, basically non-discriminatory, the same terms as you would grant it to others. So you have to give them a reasonable, fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory. I think that's what it means. So you couldn't give a, get an injunction, but you could be like a troll and demand a fee. So even, even the defense of patent license is not permanent. So the pledge that blockchain has engaged in is, number one, uh, they joined the defensive patent license, okay, uh, which is all their patents because it, it's either all or nothing. Number two, they've entered into this um, inventor's patent agreement, which is what Twitter did. Okay, so what Twitter did was Twitter says we want to prevent ourselves. We want to make a promise to the community that we will we will acquire patents and we will use them defensively if we have to. Like if someone sues us for patent infringement, we'll sue them back, which is nothing wrong with that in my opinion. But we're not going to use them aggressively, and but the problem is that promise is just it's just a promise, and it's not binding and enforceable. Sort of like the Tesla promise. So they they wanted to tie their own hands so that their promise is believable. So they basically made an agreement with all of their engineers, their their employees, their inventors, where they gave them a, a license and they signed it. That's legally binding, and it gives the inventor the right to license it to other people. So if if Twitter tried to sue a competitor. For one of their patents, Twitter's own engineer could give that defendant permission to practice it, and then Twitter's lawsuit would evaporate. So it's a way of tying your own hands, and to their credit, um, it looks like Blockstream is doing the same thing. They are giving their own engineers uh, that kind of partial ownership right of their own patents so they could prevent Blockstream from using it aggressively. Now, that's assuming that their own engineers… Or sort of have this open spirit and don't want their patents to be used, but it's it's a way of tying your hands. However, I will say I noticed that Blockstream only did that for their software patents. They they carved out their hardware patents. They said this doesn't apply to our hardware patents. So if we if we come up with patents on hardware devices, our engineers don't have this agreement, and we could we could use those aggressively. In other words, they could become a patent troll. But just as a point of fact, I I, go, I looked this up on the U.S. Patent Office website. It doesn't appear that Blockstream has any patents. They only have two – they have two patents pending that I can see. There may be some more recent patents that have not been published yet because there's an 18-month period between when you file a patent and when it becomes public. So they could have other patents filed in the last uh, – patent applications filed in the last 18 months. So they have That we don't know of. That we don't know of. Uh, so we have two – Patent applications pending by Blockstream, which are not patents yet, and they may never issue as patents. And they may have, let's say, they may have four or five other patents they filed in the intervening 18 months. So my guess would be they have four or five or six patents pending. They have no patents issued that I could find in the patent office cert. So I don't see that they're a big threat anyway, and I doubt that their patent claims will be that broad anyway because this field is already pretty established and, and crowded. The real danger is there may be some earlier patents, and I've heard rumors about some earlier patents that do cover more broad elements of blockchain-type technology that are lurking out there and could be asserted against various members of the blockchain community. 
Now, if uh, if Blockstream is not evil, um, and um, the company were, were to be sold, oh wait, wait, so right, let me let me let me before we go there, let me mention one other yeah. thing. Third, sure. the third part, if I understand this correctly, of their pledge. Uh, well, the the pledge is the first two parts. They've joined the defensive patent license, and they um, and they make the agreement with their inventors. And they also said in there that they're exploring a, a separate patent pooling type arrangement. So, the defensive patent license is for anyone to join, as, as I understand it. It's not sector specific or technology specific. So my guess is that blockchain, a uh, block blockstream, sorry, is in talks with other blockchain players to make a special uh pool pool which could actually also be a, a good development um so that's a third strategy that they're pursuing uh but i, I do also want to say that they claim that the reason they joined the defensive patent license is because, is because their only choice would be to keep their technology secret or to get a patent that's not quite correct. Number one, I doubt they can keep their technology secret because the way this whole technology works, you have to expose it to the community uh, and 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 reveal your code or at least what you're doing just to be part of the community and to to join you know the blockchain. Uh, so I don't think that's really even an option. So that's not true. So, but they seem to. There's a slight misstatement of the patent law in some of their claims. They they insinuate that uh, that having a patent claim uh, is how you establish prior art, and that's not true. Uh, instead of getting patents, they could simply publish an article or a blog post covering every one of their new innovations as soon as they get it, and that would establish prior art. That would still prevent someone else from getting a patent on it because a after a year, uh, uh, that's well known. Okay, uh, and 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 also. If someone files a patent, say six months later, before the one year's up, you could you could make an argument that they probably learned of it from your blog post, and so they weren't the inventor. So you'd have another defense. So it would really it would really be a very cheap and easy way to keep people from patenting your own technology. In other words, the purpose of joining the purpose of acquiring patents is not to keep people from patenting your technology. The purpose of acquiring a patent is to have a weapon against uh, an enemy who might sue you with their own patents, whose claims would not be the same as yours. They would have their own invention covering a different aspect. So, so if you think the purpose of filing a patent is to stop people from getting patents, you could easily do that by just making a publication. Okay, you don't need to have a patent to. But the right, the way that a patent prevents someone else from getting a patent is because it's published. It's got nothing to do with whether it's a valid patent. It's just because it's a published document, but you can have a published document without having a patent. Okay, so that said, go ahead. So I don't think that blockchain – sorry, Blockstream is a bad actor at all. I think that they are trying to uh, reassure the community in the best way that they can that they are not going to use their patents defensively. They are trying to encourage other players to make the same pledge or to join this defensive thing. They are trying to reduce the threat of patent trolls by – Reducing the pool of patents that patent trolls could acquire in the future. Uh, I think they are trying to do the right thing, uh, but like I said, I don't. Again, they could also just publish all their technology publicly without getting patents on it. That would accomplish a lot of the same um, uh, purposes. So I, I and I see no reason now. 
to say whether they're bad because they might assert their patents. I mean, every every company in the world, every every blockchain company in the world is a potential threat if they have patents because they can. That's the problem with the patent system. I mean, you could say if blockchain, if Blockstream is an evil company just because they have a couple of patents that they might be able to sue people for by getting out of the defensive license and getting out of their pledge somehow. They're no worse than anyone else that has a patent because everyone else that has a patent. Can use, everyone can use patents. So I don't. I think they're trying to show they're not a threat. Uh, I don't know what else they could do to not be a threat other than not acquire patents, but they have their own reasons for acquiring patents. And I, I, I don't criticize them for acquiring patents. I think it's a reasonable strategy as a defensive strategy. So go ahead. So um, now some people have talked about the possibility of having a custodian hold the patents, like the EFF. Is, is this even a thing? Um, I don't see the, I don't, well, okay. First of all, it's going to be hard enough to get companies to join the defensive patent license as it is. Uh, I think they only have four right now. It looks like they're pretty small. Uh, I actually think this is going to fail, and I don't mean to be critical of the proponents of the defensive patent license. I think it's going to be fail because companies, and especially their patent attorneys and their counsel and their investment bankers and their investors, are very conservative. And I don't think I could talk any of my clients into joining this. I would like to, but I don't think I could. Uh, they're they're going to say, wait, why would I? And, and not only that, as as I understand the defensive patent license, there's no need to join it ahead of time. I, you know, if if someone sues me, for, like let's say some company sues me for patent infringement, and I real and I look and I see that they're a member of the defensive patent license, I'll just join the defensive patent license and <laughs> remove the threat. I think you can do that. I don't think you have to do it ahead of time. So there, I don't see what the incentive for a company to join the defensive patent license is, especially if you can join it later. And even if even if you could join it, uh, I think a lot of companies will be reluctant to because you know their counsel is going to say, "Don't don't do that. Don't give up your right to sue. You need to. Maintain. It's too complicated." Uh, you know what? What if what if some larger company wants to purchase us, and they're part of the valuation of our company is our intellectual property, and they're going to ask, "Do you have any licenses on your intellectual property that might encumber them and make them less valuable?" You have to say yes. We entered into the defensive patent license, and the company wanting to acquire you is going to say, "What? You know, we valued you at a billion dollars, and three hundred million of that was your intellectual property, and now you're saying we can't even use it offensively." So now it's only worth $50 million. You've just lost $250 million of your valuation. So companies are going to think like that. They're going to be afraid to join the defensive patent license. So if you added yet another requirement that you have to assign ownership of your patents to a custodian, mm -hmm. that's going to even scare people off even further. Mm -hmm. I mean why would I obtain a patent just to assign it to someone else and have no control over it? I don't see what's my incentive at that point. To pay my engineers a bonus and to pay patent lawyers fees to, to acquire patents, what do I get out of it? Now, as I've commented, and I've commented on earlier drafts of this defensive license, I've had correspondence with the lawyer, the law professors that were the brains behind it, and uh, I think I sent you a blog post where I've talked about it before. Um, what I think would make these defensive licenses or defensive leagues, whatever you want to call them, more valuable would be a would be a, a contractual commitment among the members, not just to refrain from suing each other, but a, an agreement to give you one of my patents temporarily, so you can use it defensively. So, for example, 
let's say companies A, B, C, and D are all part of a, this patent license. Okay, A, B, and C, and D can't sue each other. Okay, but it's unlikely that A, B, C, and D are going to be threats to each other. The likely case is that it'll be someone outside of the pool, either a troll or a competitor who's not a part of the pool, right? Like a large company. A large company is very unlikely to join this pool anyway because the pool requires you to assign all of your patents. There's no way IBM, which is making a billion dollars a year off of licensing patents, is going to join this. There's no way a university is going to join it. There's no way a big a, a Google is going to join it because they have so many patents. Uh, they're not going to assign all of their patents, which and it's an all-or-none deal. So the large companies are not going to join this, only the mediums and the startups, right? So the large companies are going to be out there as a threat. So if I was part of a, a pool A, B, C, and D, and let's say let's say uh, Apple sues me for patent infringement, one of my defenses could be, hey, Apple is infringing one of my patents. But I might only have three patents, and Apple might not be infringing any of them. But if I'm part of a community of, let's say, uh, maybe say 100 people or 100 companies or a member of this defensive patent license, and I can look through all of their patents. Maybe we have 10,000 patents together, and hey, I find bingo. Company number C, my little – my brother company C has a patent that Apple infringes. Now, C has been afraid to sue Apple because they would get countersued, but I'm already being sued by Apple, so now I need a weapon against Apple. So I go to C, and I say, hey, C, we're both members of this club. You have an obligation to assign me your patent uh, under reasonable terms temporarily, so now I own it, so I can countersue Apple with it. So now the members of this club have available – not only a pledge from each other that they won't sue each other, but they have potential other weapons that they can acquire and use defensively against Apple, which means if Apple goes to sue company A, and Apple sees that company A uh, is a small company with only three patents, and Apple's a lawyers say, hey, they've only got three patents. We don't infringe any of them. They're fair game. We can sue the hell out of them and put them out of business because they're not a threat to us. But if Apple knows that they're part of this patent defense league and that company A has access to all the patents of all the members of the league, now Apple's lawyers have to look at all those patents because they know that if they're infringing any of the patents in that entire set of patents, that that company A could possibly get it and use it against Apple. Now Apple has a – well, first of all, it's going to be much more expensive for Apple to even determine whether it's safe to sue company A now. Do you follow me? Yes, absolutely. No, this was the point I made to the law professors behind this um, this proposal a few years ago, uh, and as far as I can tell, that is not in this patent defensive uh, license, and I doubt it will be. Uh, I wish it would be in version 1.2 or version 2.0, and to my mind, that would make it a lot more valuable, and then uh, more companies would start joining it. You could even – at that point, you could even charge companies to join it. It would be more like a patent insurance system. So then you could you could charge a company, let's say a fifty thousand dollar fee to to join this patent defensive license club because now you're buying access to all these defensive weapons. It's like a type of insurance and it would be self-sustaining. And then what you could say is you could say, Hey, you can join us if you have no patents. Just pay fifty thousand dollars or ten thousand or whatever. Maybe you could make it based upon the size of the company. Make it based upon their revenues, but you charge a fee. So you start having revenues to support the, the group, and maybe even the group starts applying for its own patents like a patent troll would do, but just as defensive nuclear weapons right? in the arsenal, in the anti-patent arsenal. And then what you could say is you have to contribute your patents to this league too if you have any, 
and the more you contribute, the lower your fees are. So then the companies still have an incentive to acquire patents because they lower the fees they have to pay to this insurance club basically, right? So that kind of system to me could work and could snowball, and that's what I would like to see explored. Uh, and eventually, even big companies like IBM could find it interesting to join, you think? Or they, or they may have no choice, right? Uh, it, may, it may be one of these things where they have no choice. Uh, uh, so, but at the, at, the, at the point where so, an IBM wants to join it, then we get back to the thing where almost everyone's in it, and then what's the point of the patent system? You know, uh, so so it would be a nullification of the patent. It, it would be like a world of it'd be a world of mutually assured destruction. So you'd have companies acquiring patents, paying fees, and no one using them. Lawsuits would go down, innovation would go up. Uh, you still have the dead weight of the patent acquisition process, and then maybe some someone would wake up and they'd say, "Wait a minute, why is the economy spending a hundred, you know, three hundred million dollars a year on patent lawyer fees to acquire these patents that no one ever uses?" Uh, you know, patent litigation would be dead by then, but patent acquisition attorneys like me would still be happily applying for patents that are just doorstoppers now. But anyway, my point is that would make this a really interesting thing, uh, and that's what I would like to have seen. There may be some legal barriers to that that I didn't consider. My my concern is that the the more successful one of these things works, the more the government would step in and attack it using antitrust law. Perversely, right? So they would say that, as I said earlier, the patent grants – the government grants patents that allow people to acquire monopoly power, but then if you so-called abuse this monopoly power, then you're in trouble of violating antitrust law. But I could also see the government saying if too many companies join this defensive patent league and they have enough power to basically bully other companies into not suing them for patent infringement… The way the government and the community looks at patent rights is it's a legitimate property right. So basically the, the growth of this – a successful growth of this defensive patent league that successfully starts stifling patent lawsuits and stifling the exercise of patent property rights could be seen as a collusion, right? which is an anti-monopoly problem, a collusion by companies to squash other people's property rights. I don't know. I could see the government complaining that the the entire purpose of the patent system is being eroded by the successful growth of the patent league I'm envisioning, which of course is the point of it. It's to kill the patent system because it's evil and horrible. What's evil and horrible is the entire patent system, uh, which is why it drives me crazy when EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is another reason I wouldn't want them to be the custodian. The EFF is not against the patent system. They do not want to abolish patents. They're against bad patents or software patents. Or patent trolls, but they're not for they're not for reformation of the system uh, that I can see. Um, and uh, there is another thing that I that just occurred to me now: the Bitcoin protocol itself um, is not a company cannot be sued, um, and it would be very difficult to shut down because it's basically just information, right? Yes, uh, the entire network is decentralized. So I do think that's one advantage of the Bitcoin. Uh, uh, model is that it's it's hard it's less vulnerable to patent lawsuits because there's no one to sue. So, but but the companies that surround it, the brick and mortar yes. companies, they would be the ones that are if, vulnerable yeah, to. If, if they're practicing a technique that is covered by some uh, some process patent, let's say, um, 
of of someone who holds a patent, yes, they are vulnerable to a lawsuit. But that you know, this is the this is the problem. I don't think this is unique to blockchain. This is the problem that every company in the world that has any kind of uh, technology related company they face this problem from the patent system today on a daily basis. The entire patent system. There are millions of patents out there, and many more millions worldwide. It's just a huge minefield, and you never know when you're going to be sued. This is the, this is why the patent system is an, a huge impediment to innovation. It, it 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 increases the amount of risk that companies face, which uh, which lowers profits and increases the cost of doing business and impedes innovation. Uh, it's just a horrible drag on the entire innovation process. But I don't see that blockchain is expressly vulnerable. Uh, if there are if there are a couple of core particular patents that the community is worried about, which I'm not aware of, I think I've heard rumors. If there are, that's the problem. But if we haven't heard of any by now, um, probably the basic technology is safe because any new patents would be uh, would have to be on some new new improvement or new innovation or new tweak not on the old technology well there was a, a fear that uh, a new technology called segregated witness would be under one of those patents but since it was made public more than 12 months ago then um as per our discussion today that would be non-patentable well it's possible that someone filed a patent six months ago or 13 months ago and we still don't know it yet because they don't get published for 18 months so it's possible there's some patent applications that are in process right now that we don't know about. I see. But they would have to have been independently invented by the person filing the patent. If they just saw this publication 12 months ago or this information and they filed a patent on it, then even if they got a patent, it could be invalidated in litigation by proving that the inventor was not the inventor. So um, we have covered a lot of the things that I wanted to cover later on, uh, you know, in, in the interweaving discussion. But now, if we assume that Blockstream is not evil, um, uh, now what can they do um, if there's anything else they can do to, um, to help mitigate the fears from the community? Uh, you said that the pledge is sort of murky. Uh, you said that the um, the no 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 no. Let me. No? I, I don't mean to say that their pledge is murky. I think. Um, no, I the, think, and uh, yes, clarified, please. I think I was talking about the uh, the, uh, the the legal status of how binding it is. Uh, they make a pledge. They say. They say. It's the problem of, as I said before, it's it's like in the in the copyright case. Let's say I publish a book and I just put on the I put on the front page this this book is hereby subject to a Creative Commons 4.0 by license. A license is a contractual permission. Normally, a license would be a contract written and negotiated and signed. Between two two concrete parties, so there's proof of the agreement, the terms of it are specified, and there's consideration, which means the person obtaining the license paid something for it. So there's a two-way deal. But if I just assert to the clouds, I hereby grant a license, I, that's not how a license is normally granted. So I'm – I think the law is 
still developing. There may be more law that I'm not aware of, so a couple of cases here and there. The law is not clear on uh, whether that's an effective way legally to grant a license. I don't know what else uh, uh, Blockstream could do. I guess the only thing they could do is – well, what I would say is they should take – they should remove their carve-out for their inventor's patent agreement. They should They should not carve out hardware. They should do that for everything. So if they want to be really against patents and purely a defensive person, they should carve out. So what they're trying to do is maintain the right to assert their um, to assert their hardware patents offensively against non-member companies that are not members of the defensive patent license. I don't think they should do that. I mean, why should they do that? If they're against patents, they should be against patents. So I would I would I would chastise them, I guess, for that. But I don't blame their 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 language. I could don't think I could write their language any clearer. I guess the only thing they could do is they could add one clause saying, if any company out there is not comfortable with the um, with the the way that our pledge is worded, in other words, you you don't think you can count on it, send us a letter. We'll be happy to sign it. In other words, we'll be happy to sign an agreement confirming this, so that you know some competitor says, I think we might be infringing one of your patents, Blockstream. Uh, and I know you said you won't sue us, but would you be? Would you please just put that in writing? Mm -hmm. And that would be a completely good defense in court. So it, it would take them, you know, 20 seconds to just have a form letter saying, uh, "We Blockstream uh, agree not to assert any of our patents against X company, fill in the blank, and in exchange for they, they're paying us $10." Okay, which is consideration, and at the bottom, countersigned by A and B, the representatives of Blockstream and the company that asked for it, and they just put a pledge on their site saying, "We are willing to sign an agreement. If this makes your counsel more comfortable, we'll sign that." Now that oh, would that's be great, and that would be fully legally binding. That would be totally legally binding. Great, that's a great suggestion. Thank you, uh, Stefan, and. Um, uh, I as a precedent or well not i don't know the legal language but has the open invention network for linux worked to defend the linux system has that been a good model oh, hold on a second on on the last issue let me just uh suppose one of blockstream's competitors approached them and they said hey thanks for offering to sign this letter agreement would you please sign it and blockstream goes I don't think I want to sign this one with you because we might we might want to really sue you. What do you think that company is going to do? They're going to publicize the hell out of it. Everyone's going to go, wait a second. Blockstream agreed to sign these documents. They've already joined this pledge, and now they won't sign it with one of their competitors. They're not living up to their word. Everyone's going to get nervous about them. So that would, of course, be unlikely to happen because Blockstream would, would look like uh, you know, a shyster at that point. right? So I think that would be another reason to have that. To make that offer, say we will sign, we will sign an agreement, putting this in writing, even with our competitors, and then then they have to live up to it because if they don't, it's going to be publicized. But anyway, as for the, I actually as for the Linux question, I'm I'm not very familiar with the exact details of how open, you're talking about open source software and how it's worked in the case of Linux. Well, they have they have their own. Uh, if I understood properly, they have their own pool. Or called the Open Invention Network, O I N. Oh, oh, is that is that a patent network then, not a copyright uh, network? That, well, um, hmm. you, I, I, uh, to be honest, I don't know. Um, it, it, it's, I would guess it's probably patents, but I don't, I don't know the. I, I think I've read about that in the past, but I, I'm not familiar with that right now. I didn't, I didn't um, refresh myself on that. If you know any details about it, I could 
discuss it, but I don't remember exactly how that's worked with in the case of Linux. That's all right. I, I was just wondering if it had worked for them, but um, uh, that's okay. If, if it's at all similar to the, the pooling arrangements and the industry standard type pools and the defensive patent licensing thing we've talked so far, it probably would be subject to the same uh, – uh, weaknesses uh, that it wouldn't be a guarantee. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't stop trolls. It, it might reduce it to some degree, but uh, if it's if it's if it's at all similar to what we discussed so far, it'd be subject to the, uh, the same criticism. But again, it's not the fault of the people creating these defensive patent leagues and joining them that they're not perfectly effective. It's because the patent system is so insidious and is such a danger, and that you just can't totally um uh, get out of it you know it, it would it's like uh if 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 i hire an employee and uh i can't afford to pay an employee minimum wage um but i'd like to hire him for like you know eight dollars an hour instead of nine or whatever the minimum wage is now uh if i want to pay him eight it's not like the employee can just say listen i promise not to invoke the uh the uh, the federal labor standards law against you. I will give you a waiver. You can hire me for eight dollars. The the government doesn't let him do that. He doesn't let that promise uh, become. It doesn't allow that promise to be enforceable by the employer. The employer can still be sued or uh, prosecuted by the government or by the employee for not paying the minimum wage. Even if, so, the government doesn't let them opt out. And similarly, there are certain there's just certain things that you just the in the patent system you just can't get out of by having these arrangements because of the nature of the patent system. But sorry, go ahead. No, that's all right. Um, so uh, in the last segment of the interview. Um, I wanted to first um, tell the the listeners that there there is a PDF, uh, an article or or a write up that you did called "Do Business Without IP," and there is a link to that uh, PDF in the show notes. Um, and so, in the last section, I would like to talk a little bit more in general terms about your your general views. Uh, libertarian views on IP, and you touched on some of them during the entire discussion. Um, but I wanted to ask you, are there examples of uh, parts of industry right now that are not subject to IP? For example, I heard that the fashion industry does not have um, ca – they cannot copyright their fashion designs. They can be copied by competitors and so on. Yeah, that's correct. There, there. Yeah, there's some. There's some. Um, there's a book by Christopher Sprigman. Um, I'm forgetting the name now, but if you look that up, he gives lots of examples. And also, um, Sprigman, Christopher Sprigman, um, and also the uh, book by uh, Against Intellectual Monopoly by uh, Boldrin and Levine, which is free online on their website, AgainstMonopoly.org. They're they're two economists that. Uh, have done a lot of research into the empirical aspects of intellectual property, and they came out against it on utilitarian or empirical grounds. Uh, I'm against it mostly on principled property rights, libertarian grounds. Um, but um, yeah, so there's examples. Um, there's lots of there's lots of aspects of life and society and commerce and tech uh, and uh, and, and uh, the economy that are not covered as much by intellectual property. So one would be uh, fashion designs. Um, 
that's why you have knockoffs of uh, like the the new uh, the new shirt shirts shirt designs dresses designs things like that. Um, and yet, the fashion industry is extremely profitable, huge, innovative, etc. Uh, perfume perfume smells aren't aren't protected by copyright or patent, uh, which is why you can go down to the drugstore and you can buy. Uh, uh, I'm forgetting what's what well, was a famous perfume, you know, uh, uh, Chanel number no. five or something. Yeah, like you could you could I think you can go down to the drugstore and buy uh, a Chanel Chanel number no. five knockoff perfume that smells basically identical um uh you have knockoffs uh of of uh, older older drugs like uh ones that ones that the fda they're over the counter now and the uh, the patents have expired like aspirin and tylenol and things like that so you'll you'll go to the drugstore and you'll see tylenol a bottle of tylenol for uh you know 6.95 next to a bottle of uh walgreens brand acetaminophen for three ninety five or two ninety five, like basically half the price, and they both compete with each other. And some people still buy Tylenol and pay the extra price just for the reputation. Um, now, there has been a movement in the fashion industry to try to get to try to extend copyright to fashion because people are always looking for ways to use the government to stop competition. And there's an interesting phenomenon um, uh, in the fashion industry because copyright doesn't apply. And patents usually don't apply. They try to look at other types of intellectual property and see if they can use those. So what they have done over the last 50 or maybe more years, they have they they use trademark law. So trademark law lets you protect your logo or your mark or your name or your brand name or your symbol. It it prevents other people from basically pretending like they're you, right? That's more of a uh, of of a of a source of the goods type. Of intellectual property, which I also think should be abolished. By the way, uh, trademark law is very problematic. But what you have is you'll have like a, a Chanel purse with that little C on there, or a Louis Vuitton purses with that little LV symbol all over the bag. What they do is they basically make their trademark part of the design of the fashion, so that if you make a knockoff of it, you are violating their trademark rights. So I think probably. The existence of trademark law and the fact that copyright law does not apply to the fashion industry has distorted the entire culture and the fashion industry and made this bizarre thing where the logo is part of the design of the product. It would be like if you bought a Mercedes car and the entire car was shaped like that little circle with the triangle in it. Yes. Or, or if there were, or if there were Mercedes symbols all over, the, like all over the car, like look like a hippie car, you know, from the, like it, it, it would be like that. So they kind of artificially distort the way their products look to take advantage of trademark law, so they can use it to stop competition or stop logo knockoffs. Another interesting example was, um, uh, it's a little bit uh, in the weeds of of how IP law works, but. Um, there's a doctrine called the first uh, first sale doctrine in copyright, which means that if I sell you a book, I can sell it uh, – the idea is that I'm giving you – I've exhausted the right to charge a copyright fee because I'm giving you the right to use the book. Uh, you can't make a copy of the book because I retain the copyright, but you can resell the book. Okay, I can't prevent you from reselling the book because I've exhausted the right to charge a monopoly rate when I sold you the book, protected by my copyright. Okay, that's called the first sale doctrine. Uh, there's been some 
there was a case I think it's called Kurt Sang, K A K I R T S A N G. There was this guy I forgot the country, one of these Asian countries, Indonesia or Malaysia or somewhere, uh, and he was an American student from that country. And what he would do is he noticed that the publishers of like textbooks, I think he was in grad school or something, they would sell the books for like five times as much in America than in Malaysia, let's say. They would print the books on much cheaper paper, but basically they're selling at a lower price because uh, for, for price discrimination because they can't sell it for as much over there because the country's not as wealthy. So he would buy the book legally. So it's a legitimately published book from Wiley, say Wiley, the publisher Wiley. He would buy a textbook for you know ten dollars in Malaysia, bring it to the US and sell it here for fifty dollars. When the U.S. version was selling for a hundred, okay, something like that. So he was arbitraging the difference, and then he was sued for copyright infringement because the argument was that the first sale doctrine doesn't apply if the first sale is in another country outside the U.S. copyright. So one of these, okay, arcane arguments. And if I recall, he lost. Okay, now you had a case of Costco, you know, the low cost. Uh, Chain yeah, and they noticed that Omega, you know, the Omega watches, they were being sold like in Argentina or somewhere for a lot cheaper for the same reason. So, legitimate Costco watches, I mean, sorry, Omega watches were being sold for let's say, I don't know, fifteen thousand dollars in the U.S. and maybe two thousand in Argentina. So they were doing the same thing. They were buying the watch legitimately in Argentina and selling it in Costco for four thousand dollars, right? A big bargain, something like that. Uh, maybe I may have the details wrong, but it's something like that. So Costco sued them, and they they couldn't they couldn't win because this is just free trade, arbitrage. So what they did was they put this little globe logo on the back of the watch, which is a, your an original design, which is of course covered by copyright. So now they could sue Costco and say that Costco was was importing a copyrighted work, and the first sale doctrine doesn't apply because. It was sold in another country first and stopped them from doing that, and I believe they won. So so you see how companies will use whatever they can that exists in, in IP law, trade, trademark, trade secret, patent law, copyright, semiconductor, mass work design, even libel and libel law and slander law. They will use these laws as much as they can to stop competition. Uh, but luckily, there are some industries that are they're not yet as heavily encumbered. By IP as others like like fashion and perfume scents, uh, maybe food. How about food recipes? The restaurant industry. There's nothing that prevents um, uh, McDonald's from making a Whopper. They can't call it a Whopper because that's a trademark issue, but they could make a sandwich identical to the Whopper. Burger King could make a sandwich identical to the Big Mac because that's not protected by anything. Although I have seen on occasion one of these companies will try to get a patent on their new food technique. Like if Domino's Pizza comes up with a pizza that has the crust rolled in a certain way at the end, which has, I don't know, maybe a cheeseburger stuffed into the end of the crust, they'll file a patent on a pizza having a hamburger on the end or something. And on occasion they've gotten – I think there's a patent on a on a crustless peanut butter and jelly sandwich okay which which we've all made before so the, theoretically they could um, they could have a uh, you could have patents on food items but that's pretty rare and hard to get 
Now, playing devil's advocate here uh, before the end of the interview, uh, what about the people that says, well, what about the little musician or the little author that needs, you know, um, the, uh, intellectual property in order to make a living? Uh, are they today actually making a living? Is this really benefiting them? Well, you you could find some isolated cases, I think, where some people benefit from copyright and patent law. Of course, IBM benefits from patent law to some extent. Patent trolls benefit from patent law. Uh, uh, the Eagles may benefit from copyright law. The Eagles just sued uh, a hotel in Mexico because they call themselves Hotel California, even though they were called Hotel California before the Eagles wrote their song. Uh, so some people do profit from using existing laws to extort money from people. I don't think that's a justification for the government granting these extortion rights to people. Um, secondarily, I would say that the purpose of law is not to make sure the little guy can make a profit on doing what their heart – what they want to do. The purpose of law is to protect property rights and to do justice, uh, and it, within that framework, within a property rights framework… People that want to make money doing something are basically entrepreneurs, and they need to figure out how to do it. They need to take into account the fact that they might be competed with and that other people might start copying them if they're successful, and they need to take that into account. This is just the way the free market works. Competition is not something you should have the right to protect against, and if you release information into the public like a song or software or a novel uh, or a new mousetrap… Whose design is evident? I don't think you have a complaint that other people you're informing other people of this information, and now they might use it too to make something similar or even identical to what you've done. I don't think you have a complaint. If you want to keep information to yourself, keep it to yourself. Most people don't want to keep it to themselves. They want the benefits of making it public, like the benefit of being able to sell my mousetrap. I need to make the mousetrap public to sell it. To get fans for my music, I need to sell it. Uh, so I don't think you have a right to complain. S third, I would say that uh, copyright law has totally broken. It does not stop copying, especially in the age of the internet and encryption and file sharing uh, and de decentralized sharing and uh, you know uh, thumb drives that have massive data, all this kind of stuff. Uh, an uh, anonymous uh, anonymous proxies and. and uh, VPN, all this stuff has made it basically impossible to stop people copying. So we all know that there is a massive amount of so-called piracy of any new movie, any new music, uh, any new photograph, uh, or anything that's made public is almost instantly pirated and copied. And so whether or not you have copyright law, you're going to have massive, massive unpaid copying of artists' work. So that's the world they live in. That's the world they're always going to live in going forward because the internet – under this internet era, it will never get harder to copy things. It's only going to get even easier. So they already live in a world where copying is widespread. So if we eliminated copyright law, I mean it might make copying slightly easier. Fourthly, I don't think uh, independent artists make that much money from the copyright system. In the past, until recently, they were they were – the copyright system created the publishing industry and the music industry right, and the movie industry, which served as these big gatekeepers of what could be published and produced, and the artists usually got a very bad deal anyway. Uh, 
and most artists don't sell that much anyway. Most people write books. They don't make any money on them anyway. Most people that write songs, they don't make much money off of that. They make money off of other aspects of that. You know, an, a, a singer wants her first few albums to become copied and spread widely so that she becomes popular and so that she can sell more tickets to her concerts, for example. So it's, it's like a lost leader. It's a type of advertising. Uh, in the case of uh, like a novelist, uh, they want to become popular because at that point, like, let's say let's say Harry Potter, the first Harry Potter had been written and had become popular, and let's say the author had made almost no money because it was copied a lot. Well, but now she's got millions of fans around the world, and she could say, hey, guess what, everyone? I've got number two written. As soon as I get uh, a million orders, pre-orders for the book for $5 each, I'll release it. Her fans are going to pay $5 for this. She's got five million bucks in the bank, and then she could do that with all the sequels. I mean pretty soon she's a multimillionaire. Maybe if a movie – maybe someone wants to make a movie of the Harry Potter book, and under a copyright-free world, they don't need her permission because there's no copyright. So you might have two or three Harry Potter movies being made simultaneously, and one of them says, oh, hell, there's two other movies being made. We're just going to be one of the pack. I know. I'll approach J.K. Rowling, and I'll say… Would you please be a consultant on this movie and, and and give it your blessing and authorize it and tell all your fans this is the authorized movie because we'll sell more tickets than those other guys, and we'll give you a cut of the proceeds. So now she's got another $20 million in the bank. You know, So there's a lot of ways you could come up with to make money off of your creative work. Now, you can't always make money off your creative work. Let's say you like to write poetry. Or you like to write blog posts like I do and like a lot of us do. We don't get paid for that now. Most poets don't make money off their poetry. Maybe you become a famous poet and you land a job teaching poetry or English at a college. So now it's helped you land a job. So or maybe it's just a side pursuit. You know, maybe I'm a patent lawyer during the day and I play in a rock band at night just for fun. So basically I'm subsidizing my own career. So I'm my own benefactor, and I'm my own patron. Uh, lots of people have hobbies on the side that no one pays them for. They basically are subsidizing themselves. So if you're interested in producing something that's hard to get paid for because it's so hard, so easy for other people to copy, then you just can't – if you can't think of a way to monetize it, then it's something that can't be monetized, and it shouldn't be done unless you want to do it just for the love of doing it. There probably just isn't the market. Yeah, and of course there's been empirical studies showing that most people that innovate, that create inventions and new scientific and mathematical discoveries, and most people that create a new novel or that uh, uh, make music, they don't do it for the monetary reward anyway. That's not how creativity even works. Uh, it's nice if you can build a career around doing what you love, but most of us can't do that. For most of us, there's a difference between vocation and avocation. Or a difference between career and calling. Some people are lucky enough to combine the two. Not everyone can do it. That's the way the world is. And by well, the way, I don't think that copyright and patent law make that even more possible. They actually uh, impose harm on innovation and creativity, and they reduce innovation, and they distort the culture. They reduce free speech. Uh, you know, if you if if I want to make a documentary right now and I want to include some music in the background or some clips. Or some photographs of statues. I've got to get all these permissions from people now, and they can block me. 
a lot of documentaries have been shelved or they have to be heavily distorted because of the existence of intellectual property. If I want to put this piece of code in my software that makes sense, or if I want to put a little feature in – I want to make my airbag in my car work a certain way that's more safe for my, for my, for my uh, customers, my drivers, but someone else has a patent, one of my competitors, I've got to design around it and put a different thing in there that doesn't work as well or that's more expensive just so I don't infringe their patent. I'm putting people's lives in jeopardy on purpose. If, if someone is selling a drug that's protected by a patent… Like Cipro or Ciproflaxin, the anti, uh, uh, the anti uh, anthrax drug, uh, or or uh, or other types of drugs, and I, I have a monopoly on it, and I don't produce enough. Some people might die, or I could charge a thousand dollars per dose, and some people can't afford it. It actually causes some people to die. You know, so uh, these things do not foster competition. They don't foster innovation. Artists. Might be uncomfortable with the idea of switching to a free, a brave, free new world because we're not used to it. But they could adapt, and I think the, the arts would flourish far more. I think so too. My wife is a, a full time violinist, and uh, we maybe once a year we get like a five dollar check from the musicians' union saying that we have some royalties or something like that. But it, it's, it's really laughable. Uh, we make our money differently. Well, uh, Stefan, uh, thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time. The interview went a little longer than I had planned it, but it was fascinating. Um, and I think your ideas were, uh, were very interesting and very constructive. Um, is there anything that you want to uh, plug? I think you, you have a podcast uh, as well as your website. Yeah, StephanKinsella.com is my, my libertarian website, and I do have a podcast, which is – like this will be on there. Basically, it's just interviews, but in, probably half of them are on intellectual property, and the other half are on other libertarian topics. Um, and I've got a related website, which is linked from there called C4SIF.org, Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom.org, which, which is where I put most of my intellectual property-related material. Uh, so people are free to look up that. I've got a book called Against Intellectual Property, which is on both sites, which is free to download um, if people want to follow up on these ideas uh, in more detail. That's wonderful, Stefan. Thank you again, and have a good day. You're welcome. Thanks.